Welcome to the People vs. Inequality podcast. In a time of crisis and fast change, this podcast is a space to reflect and learn with changemakers on how to tackle inequality. By diving into the choices they make and the approaches they take, but also the obstacles they face and their hopes and dreams in making real change happen. In the second season of the People vs. Inequality podcast, we focus on climate justice. As the climate crisis is accelerating and inequalities are on the rise, we ask, how can we get urgent climate action that is also just? Should we be taken to the streets or lobby the halls of power? And how to come together across movements to make sure all, all voices are heard? My name is Barra van Pasen, and I'm excited to introduce you to our guest of today, who is someone that takes justice very seriously. Tessa Kahn is a leading environmental and human rights lawyer. She played a crucial role in building this global strategic litigation movement and winning landmark court cases for climate justice. She won a 2018 Climate Breakthrough Award and recently set up a new NGO called Uplift, working for a just and fossil fuel-free UK. We are speaking just before the holidays. I ask her how she's taking on one of the most powerful industries in the world and why she thinks we will win. We tap into her strategic vision on what it takes to build true climate justice. This and more in today's episode of the People vs. Inequality podcast. So please grab a coffee or tea and listen in on the conversation. Welcome, Tessa. It's so great to have you here. Thank you so much, Barbara. It's a real pleasure to be invited on the show. We're very happy to have you here also because we know you're very busy and uh, you must have had some roller coaster weeks. First, there were the climate negotiations in Glasgow. And I think last week you were in the courtroom, if I'm right. How are you? <laughs> yeah, it's been uh, it's been a big year, but you know there have been some real highlights and high points in our work and our collective work, I think, as well as more challenging moments, of course. But that's that's the nature of you know trying to do difficult, ambitious work, I guess. So yeah, but feeling still feeling pretty energized. That's really good and, and also impressive. And uh, we're, we'll be talking a little bit about the highs and the lows. I just want to start really quickly on the recent climate negotiations. I've spoken to quite a few people that were in Glasgow and quite a few of them were very angry, even depressed uh, by the failures of governments to deliver. And others actually felt really energized by the movement that seems to be taking shape, especially also in the areas of climate justice. I'm just curious where in this spectrum did these climate negotiations put you? Yeah, well, I think a lot of, you know, how people felt after COP, the climate negotiations, depended, I think, on their expectations going in to the process. I mean, it's a, you know, multilateral process that's happened every year for the past 26 years. And so, you know, we've got a long record of outcomes from those negotiations. So, you know, and, and we know basically what the limitations are of that forum for really creating the kind of change and at the scale and the pace that we need. So I think, you know, in light of that and having been to a few COPs before this year, I think my expectations were thoroughly managed. And in that respect, I wasn't, you know, that's not to say, of course, that it isn't always heartbreaking when governments failed to, you know, in many ways, even 
acknowledge the urgency of the moment that we're in. But I really see what happens at these climate negotiations, at these COPs, as just one part of a really huge tapestry of work and action and movements that are working on the issue, despite all of the constraints, actually, that people faced, particularly from the Global South, in participating in the COP. You know, I think that the calls for climate justice were really loud. I think just the sophistication of the of the movement, the People's Summit, the way in which people engaged with the negotiations was a cause for, I think, celebration. In all of these negotiations, there is no escaping the kind of power imbalance between North and South and the reticence, recalcitrance of, of Northern governments to take responsibility for their role in the crisis. Yeah, thanks for that. And there's already so much to unpack in what you just said around power, around strategies. I, I like that you put the climate negotiations into a, a broader, I mean, tapestry of what needs to happen. And I think the work that you're doing also shows that. We always like to start with hearing a little bit more about you and about how you ended up doing the work that you're doing. Can you tell us a little bit about how you, how and why you got engaged in this work? And I really started out working in human rights. I trained as a lawyer in Australia where I grew up, but my intention was never to practice in commercial law. Um, it was always to work on questions of human rights and inequality, even if I didn't really have the language for, I think, describing that. But just, I mean, my family is from Bangladesh and, you know, I grew up in a community, in a country that is you know, profoundly racist and the kind of very stark inequality that I could perceive every time we went back to Bangladesh compared to what, you know, the living conditions of people in Australia, you know, I just from a very young age was pretty acutely aware of that sort of unfairness, you know, which is, I guess, how I would have described it at the time. And so I, yeah, I mean, I worked for edit internships for human rights NGOs in India and Egypt while I was studying law and then having kind of qualified and practiced as a lawyer briefly in Australia, I then went kind of in search of opportunities in human rights law and sort of made my way through, you know, and as, as you often have to be, kind of opportunistic when you're starting out, you know, you just sort of Fair take enough. the opportunities that come come to you. But luckily, I mean, I learned a lot in all of the different roles that I had and sort of the summer of 2015 that I heard about this case in the Netherlands, that Dutch NGO that I'd never heard of, Agenda, was bringing against the Dutch government, basically arguing that under kind of ex its existing human rights legal obligations and sort of Dutch under Dutch civil law, that it had a binding legal obligation that was enforceable in a domestic court to do more to reduce the Netherlands greenhouse gas emissions. And I was sort of connected to one of the lawyers in that case just because I, I'd written an article, co-authored an article in The Guardian with a friend that made a similar point, basically that, you know, regardless of what happened in Paris, that under human rights law and under other bodies of law, governments were already legally obliged to do more than they were doing. And so one of these Dutch lawyers kind of got in touch and was like, oh, we're making similar arguments in our case. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I'm sure I'll never hear from you again. But then, of course, they won and it was, you know, front yeah. page news. Amazing. <laughs> um, As a Dutch citizen, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still very grateful. 
Yeah, I can imagine. And it was so inspiring. And it was exactly, I think, the kind of breakthrough that it felt like we needed just in the face of mounting cynicism about what these international commitments can produce. And so at the end of that year, after the Paris conference had concluded and the negotiations around the SDGs, I basically got in touch with that, those Dutch lawyers at Agenda and basically offered to quit my job to work with them to replicate what they had done in other countries around the world. And they were like, oh, excellent timing, because we actually are overwhelmed by requests from campaigners and lawyers who do want to learn, you know, how we've done what we've done, how we've used the evidence and the science and the arguments, which, you know, given that they were human rights human rights based or tort based, you know, have an equivalent in so many countries. So we set up something called the Climate Litigation Network. And yeah, and, and then I kind of went on to spend the next the five rest years is history. So. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we, you know, supported, I mean, in addition to working on the ongoing appeals within the Dutch case, which culminated in a victory in the Supreme Court in, in December in 2019. Yeah, we supported cases in lots of other countries, including also, you know, another successful case in the Supreme Court in Ireland. By last year, it was clear that climate litigation, you know, basically using the law to hold governments and the fossil fuel industry accountable for their role in the climate crisis, their failure to take the action that they've acknowledged is needed. That is a tool that is being used everywhere now. Yes. You know, in 2015, it was kind of a pretty novel idea, but now I think, you know, we see it it's so prevalent that just this year alone there have been successful cases against the Belgian, French and German governments and the case against Shell. I had been thinking for a while about the way in which the fossil fuel industry, as many others have, have just continued to really escape meaningful accountability for their role in the crisis, the fact that they are continuing to plan to expand production of fossil mm. fuels when We've known for years, actually, that we can't even extract existing reserves of oil, gas and coal, let alone open up new reserves. And, you know, it, it felt like as far as coal is concerned in, you know, the UK and Europe and North America, we've more or less come to a consensus that we've got to get rid of it. But oil and gas, I think the next real frontier for the climate movement in terms of confronting both where the power is because it's an incredibly politically powerful industry mm. but also you know it's what we've got to radically diminish the size of if we're going to stay within 1.5 degrees or a, you know a livable climate and so that was really the motivation for setting up uplift which also allows me to use non-legal tools. So, mm. I mean, I'm still very interested in litigation and I see it as a really powerful tactic, but I think having worked using exclusively litigation really for a number of years, I also see it as being something that is at its most powerful when it's embedded in a broader campaign and advocacy strategy. And so mm -hmm. the nice thing about Uplift is that we can kind of play with all of the different tools that you have as a campaigner. Yeah. Rather than just looking at litigation alone. Yeah, this this to me is really exciting about what you do, having worked in campaigning myself and having seen how the way in which you 
almost mix and match your your strategies and tactics is is extremely mm-hmm. important for the change you can make. And at the same time, I think it's really brave that I mean you're on this track of of a very successful you know strategic litigation movement, let's say, and you decide to kind of do do something a little bit differently. Can you can you say a little bit more about how that sort of moments? I mean, you, yeah, there are the rational arguments with the with the pandemic and stuff, but can you say a little mm. bit more about how that shift came about or yeah I mean I guess I always think about you know our responsibility especially you know in the middle class and the global north people with privilege really that as far as the climate crisis goes we all have a responsibility to use our best skills to work on fixing it Mm. and so You know, I think one of the things, as I said, I really don't consider myself to be a particularly good technical legal thinker or drafter or, you know, that's not, for some people, that's definitely their kind of superpower. I think I'm a bit better at thinking about strategy and sort of looking at the big picture and identifying where opportunities are. And I think a lot about political change and, you know, I try to learn as much as I can from other examples in history of, you know, big leaps forward in terms of social and political change. And and I guess because at, with the Climate Litigation Network, we were really sort of, not to, not to say that my colleagues there aren't still doing really cutting edge work, but it, it, it was kind of in execution mode in that the strategy had worked and other people had adopted it. And we were now just kind of scaling, I suppose. And I was just motivated to think more about, in light of everything we've learned, even in the last five years in the climate movement, you know, what we could, what else we could be doing, how we could be harnessing new ideas and the moment that we're in, the new opportunities. And that, that I think is what I probably good at. (laughs) But I also find interesting, I, indeed you're focusing on the country you're living in i mean the global north has a massive responsibility to stop polluting basically urgently there's a strong global justice element to this right i mean you're working you're working close to home but there's a definitely a global benefit to the work what i find interesting is also that you you have quite a specific focus you decided to really you know set a very specific goal in the country you live in in a particular industry Why do you think that's so important? I really appreciate that you brought up, I think, the kind of global justice dimension of the work. And I think that definitely was also another driver of my decision to focus on the UK. And I often think, you know, about what the best thing that I could do for my family in Bangladesh, you know, or all of the people that I know, my sort of friends and community in Asia. And and I think, yeah, it's definitely to force the UK government to deliver its obligations to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions, to deliver finance, you know, and aid to developing countries to drop debt. Like we really have a responsibility, I think, as citizens in global North countries to leverage our power as constituents that those governments care about, you know, to really push them, which you can't do if you're a Bangladeshi, you know, there's only so far you can get advocating to the UK government, but if we can build a movement here to really create that pressure, then I think that's a responsibility to do that from a climate justice perspective. But yeah, in terms of why why the sort of specific focus, that was your question, right? Or yeah, 
yeah. also the, the usefulness of having sort of a, a very clear focus. The real advantage in having that kind of focus is it's like you have a clear goal, but you don't have any constraints on the different tactics that you will use to achieve that goal, you know. So I feel like a lot of NGOs or organisations are set up with a particular model of working in mind and a sort of undefined set of advocacy goals, which can work, you know. I mean, that can be a really successful way of doing things. But I think it it's quite powerful to have a really, and, and I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, it's ambitious. It's, you know, shutting down the UK's oil and gas industry. Yeah, and I wouldn't say it's niche. Transition. <laughs> no, exactly. So it's a just transition and it's ending oil and gas production. But with that kind of clarity, you know, we've just been able to develop the whole kind of set of strategies that we need to push in that single direction. And I think that that's a really useful kind of north star for our work that means that we're always really focused and being strategic I guess you know because we just there's such a clear outcome that we're pushing for and it also forces you to think as creatively as possible about all of the ways that you could be coming at that one problem you know whereas I think organizations that have multiple problems that they're working on or just one strategy, whether that's litigation or movement building, you know, all of those are really important strategies. But I think it's it's great when you can use multiple strategies for, for kind of achieving that outcome. I'm also asking this question because I, I often see this and I've also faced this issue in my own work that, I mean, also because there are many problems, they're, they're often connected. There's different opportunities. So there's always a kind of a... I don't know, a, a drive to to try to to do too much, I think, um, and to spread yourself widely. So I think it's it's really interesting to see that how you're approaching this. And at the same time, you're not narrow in the sense, I mean, yes, it's very ambitious, but also you're bring, really bringing together environmental and social justice concerns, I think, which is really timely and important. Can you say a little bit about how you do that? Yeah, I mean, this has been the big challenge, I think, for the climate movement in many ways is this, I think we're good, the sort of climate justice, the call for climate justice has rightly mostly been about the inequalities between the global south and global north and that sort of international analysis of the climate crisis and its sort of justice dimensions. But I think we're much less good at thinking about the justice implications of the change that we're pushing for in the countries that we're pushing for that change. So in the UK, that is, you know, if we were to shut down the expansion of oil and gas here, that would have implications for tens of thousands of people and their communities who have relied on, you know, all of the economic benefits that come from having these huge domestic industries. And I think there's been a long history of distrust between the environmental movement and the labour movement yeah. um, because, you know, the sorts of demands that environmentalists have made have really paid so little attention to the implications for employees in those industries who, you know, end up there not because they want to destroy the planet but because, you know, as as so many of us do, you just end up by default in a particular role and that then becomes your livelihood and 
you know, you're not personally at fault, especially for the decisions of companies where the fault clearly lies with the people at the top who have made decisions, you know, that are the ones that are really the problem. So I think we have a huge challenge ahead of us as the climate movement to really make real our rhetoric of just transition, you know, which is the idea that the transition away from fossil fuels or towards the kind of zero carbon economies of the future don't leave people behind or sacrifice communities um, in pursuit of that transition. And I think especially if you're approaching this work from a human rights perspective, it's unconscionable to think that, well, I'm working on climate change to protect the human rights of people in this country, but I don't care about, you know, the fact that I'm putting X, Y and Z people out of the job. Our partners here in the UK are doing an amazing job of really working in solidarity with the oil and gas workforce. So, for example, our partners, Friends of the Earth Scotland and an organisation called Platform and Greenpeace, they did a survey at the end of last year of the oil and gas workforce in the UK that showed that, you know, 80% of them would consider leaving the industry if they had support to do that. And and that's because, you know, it's a crappy industry to work Mm. for in terms of the labour conditions. As I said, people lose their jobs all the time when the oil price crashes and so on. But also, of course, you know, they also care about the climate. And I think, you know, they see that it's an industry that is in decline. And so anyway, those organisations subsequently, like later this year, worked with oil and gas workers to develop a kind of joint call for what they called an offshore training passport, which was basically a way for offshore oil and gas workers to be able to transfer into offshore wind, which is a big growing industry in the UK, Mm. without having to jump through all of the hoops that they currently do, just to kind of basically make that process a bit smoother. Very interesting. You know, that's, yeah, but it's, it's real work. You know, it's not just like adding another bullet point onto your list of demands. That's really interesting. And in terms of you said you have a, a whole range of strategies that you're pursuing. And I, and I think what you're sharing now is is part of that. And um, you are still also using the courtroom, I think. And you were in court last week. Yeah, Can you say a little right. bit about, I mean, what happened there sure. and, and how that is part of your strategy moving forward? In short, as I mentioned, the UK government subsidizes oil and gas companies to extract oil and gas, as do so many rich G20 governments, you know, it's hundreds of billions of dollars in subsidies. But nobody knows about it, partly because it's through the tax regime. So it's not, it's not quite as straightforward as just handing out checks, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's via tax breaks and rebates and that kind of thing. So it's complicated, but it's basically what makes oil and gas so profitable as a as an industry. So we think it's really important and that the public would be outraged if they knew that in the middle of a climate emergency, the UK government was giving out billions of pounds in public money to those companies. So the litigation is a challenge to, it's a case brought by three kind of climate activists, individual climate activists, including someone from the part of Scotland where the oil and gas industry is concentrated. Her parents both worked in the industry. It also includes another guy who is an ex-oil worker and a a woman who's a medical student. But they have brought this case against the UK's Oil and Gas Authority that is really a challenge to the scale of the subsidies that that body facilitates. And, you know, I think has done, as, as, you know, as I always say with these sorts of cases, you never know if you're going to win or lose. You know, you really... 
you have to hope for a win, but you've got to prepare for a loss because the arguments are unprecedented. And so I think that the coalition of organisations supporting the case have really done an amazing job of leveraging the case throughout the year to really talk about subsidies. And there's, you know, there have been headlines now in the UK about oil and gas subsidies, and it's just now on the kind of public agenda in a way it really wasn't before. That's the real argument for litigation, you know, because you never know what will happen in court, but you Mm. can make sure that you use all of the admissions that the government makes in the course of defending their position. You know, they've they've stated that they subsidise oil and gas. They've conceded that they don't really think that it matters whether or not the kind of economic value produced by the industry goes straight back to oil and gas companies or goes to the UK public. Like all this stuff that's really outrageous. Yeah. We've gotten them on the record saying that and we can now use that in all of our campaigning as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, And that's interesting also because, I mean, sometimes the argument is, right, I mean, citizens elected this government, they are just doing what the sort of what their democratic mandate is or a company, you know, consumers are buying our products. But I think what you're showing is not only through the court case that they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, they're not doing what they're saying they're doing, but you're also using it to create a broader awareness uh, because maybe it isn't what citizens actually want, right? Maybe it's not what they thought they voted for. They're not aware. Yeah, so it's. I think that's really powerful that you're using these court cases to, to really create awareness and to, which I think tackles some of the counter arguments, which I never thought were very strong, but that are often put forward in terms of mm-hmm. citizen responsibility or consumer responsibility. Am yeah. I right? I want to talk a little bit about the power question. This show is really also about, I mean, how can we shift power? Because that's so needed to make change happen. And you mentioned the massive power of the fossil fuel industry, which I'm I'm guessing a lot of your strategies and tactics that you're using are somehow trying to shift that. Can you say a little bit more about how the playing field looks and, and how you approach it? Yeah, I think any kind of conventional analysis of power and I know people have lots of different kind of taxonomies of power you know but um by lots of different metrics the oil and gas industry is more powerful more well resourced more well connected bigger by every metric really than the climate movement so it looks really imbalanced in that respect and it's also what's allowed them to and the and, and they've captured governments you know and not just you know the nigerian government or you know the governments that people think about as being captured by oil and gas in the past but you know they've also written the tax laws in the uk and um so they're you know the the power that they wield is visible and invisible and that's what's allowed them to kind of get away with distorting the science and lobbying you know they've spent billions of dollars since the Paris agreement was signed lobbying against climate change policy mm. so controlling the narratives at, as yeah as part of that right yeah yeah and you know including narratives that are really kind of pernicious but maybe people don't realize like you know it was oil and, the oil and gas industry created the idea of the personal carbon footprint and that was a deliberate tactic to make, you know, you and me feel like we're the ones that are responsible for climate change, that we should be, you know, walking rather than driving or, you know, eating less meat when obviously our individual decisions 
pale in comparison to the decision that Shell makes to open up massive new oil exploitation off the South African coastline, you know, which they're currently doing. Yeah, I think if you look at it in those terms, it can feel overwhelming. Like we don't have any power and they've got it all. We're in a really crucial moment for making sure that we just put the final nails in the coffin of the oil and gas industry and don't let them reinvent themselves as renewable energy companies Mm. when they still continue to invest in oil and gas. I'm very curious how you see that. I mean, you coming from a human rights uh, background into a climate environmental space, a lot of opportunities, but also still challenges in, in bringing these different these different worlds together. You have people working on women's rights, which is really important. Mm. You have the whole social justice um, movement, and then you have this environmental movement who have been traditionally, you know, owning, I wouldn't say owning, but uh, have been very active in this space. I mean, how can, what can we do and what are you doing in your organization to, to bring these together? It is a challenge, but I think it's also an opportunity to make the climate movement, you know, the biggest intersectional movement ever, you know, and I think other people have said that that is, that is something that we can do because climate change will affect all of us. No question. It will affect some more than others, those who are least deserving, but it does call on all of us to support and demonstrate solidarity for everyone else, you know, that our struggles are kind of connected and climate change will connect us all in a way that nothing else really has. And I think that that's, that is a big part of what is so beautiful about, I think, the kind of movement for climate justice is it's not just a call for climate justice. It recognises that climate change is the result of the same extractive systems that have driven, you know, resource-related conflict and women's rights violations and, you know, all of the ways in which our human rights are interdependable, you know, and uh, interdependent rather. And I think you do see those calls for not just climate justice. Climate justice is racial justice, is gender justice, you know, it's, yeah. it's all of the above. You know, that's still an emergent part of the climate movement. You know, certainly there are more traditional environmental organisations who are still very much kind of conservation sort of mindset. But I think they're also starting to recognise the opportunities, the power that lies in building that bigger movement and embracing the demands of everyone else who's experiencing inequality. And I think, you know, one example of some really important work that's being done that I think really highlights these intersections is one frightening thing about climate change is that the one industry that's been really telling the truth about how bad it is, how bad it's going to be, is the private security industry. And that's because they see a huge opportunity in telling governments in Europe and in the global north that the climate crisis is going to be bad. It'll lead to mass migration from the global south and you need to secure your borders. And it's basically creating you know, what a group of campaigners is calling the border industrial complex, you know, where our response to climate change is not to fix the problem, support, you know, adaptation and mitigation measures in global South countries, but to just build walls. Mm. And that's a human rights crisis. And, you know, we've already seen it with the kind of militarization of borders in the US and in Europe. And we know that these crises will get worse. And unless the climate movement starts to embrace those sorts of implications, it will effectively support governments whose response to climate change. And we've already seen parties emerging in countries like Denmark and others, where they are pro-climate action and anti-immigration and they will close their borders, you know, and that is 
a crisis and a deep injustice that I think we've got to be really vigilant about. I mean, we've talked a bit about this, some of the opportunities that are there. What gives you most hope and what would be your biggest hope uh, in moving forward? It's one that people often ask, I think, because hope seems so elusive when we actually look at the facts, you know. As far as hope goes, you know, we've had a huge victory actually here in the UK. We've managed to basically stop We've been campaigning against this oil field, the Cambo oil field, which Uplift has been coordinating that campaign along with a few other organisations. And oil and gas fields in the UK have historically just been opened without any public scrutiny and oil and gas companies take it for granted that that's what will happen. But this year we stopped the Cambo oil field from being opened up. Two weeks ago, Shell, which was one of the operating partners, withdrew its investment. And then last week, the remaining partner, Sticker Point Energy, said that they were pausing development. And that's, you know, 200 million barrels of oil that is now not going to come out of the ground. And that is the result. And all of the industry publications will tell you that that is because they were scared of the level of public opposition. So that was our movement that did that. Amazing. And, you know, we the fight isn't over. There are still another 30 oil and gas fields that we've got to make sure don't get opened up in the next few years. But it shows that we can win and yeah. that the industry is scared and that we now have the power, actually. Like, we've defeated one of the most powerful oil and gas companies in the world. I really think of hope as being, and I'm not the first person to say this, but, you know, it's not something that you receive passively. You can't just sit there waiting for hope. You know, you've got to get up and act and acting is what generates hope. And so I have hope every day because I am surrounded by people who are dedicating their time and energy to fighting this fight, you know, and I believe in the fight. I don't need to see every day that we're winning to still want to fight, you know, and I think about people who, fought for civil rights in the US or for independence in Bangladesh and, you know, other countries, they were up against the most staggering odds, you know. They were up against, they were trying to make history, basically. So if they were looking for hope because that that required you to have some past victory or, you know, that everybody was on your side, like they wouldn't have found it. But they kept going because they believed in what they were fighting for. And actually, yeah. And actually, we have a huge advantage in that, at least in a country like the UK, the public is freaking out about climate change. They want more to be done, you know, and that's the case increasingly around the world. Young people, but everyone really is super concerned about the climate crisis. So the public support is there. Um, You know, what are the big challenges that we have is now? convincing governments and and industry that they have to change. But, you know, we're in a better position in a way than some of those previous movements have been. That's, again, not to understate the challenge, but I think that's, you know, I I often think, you know, hope is less kind of important in in that sense than agency. Mm. You know, like we have agency. We can still do stuff. There's still loads to do, actually. I have a to-do list that I never get through because... There's so much that we could be doing and there are increasingly, yeah, more and more people joining this fight. So that is all I really need, to be honest. I want to thank you for being with us today, Tessa, and for sharing your story, your strategic vision, and uh, to inspire us to to be part of this movement and to trust in the agency that we have uh, at a time of great need and also momentum. Thank you so much, Favre. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's episode. 
I take away so much from Tessa's observations on the powers at play, her strategic choices, and her reminder that there is loads of work to do for all of us. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe, leave a review, and spread the word so more people can join. Check out the resources in the show notes. And of course, watch this space for more inspiring episodes coming up. Ciao!